constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And the first segment of Big Beacon Radio today is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're fortunate to be joined by an Olin uh, faculty member, Lawrence Neely. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the show. And... um, uh, we've had a number of, we've had uh, Rick Miller on the show before and Vin Mano. We've had Rob Martello, Mark Somerville. So you're, you're another in a long line of distinguished Olin faculty that we've, um, that we've had on the show. And uh, Olin, uh, Lawrence, you're an assistant prof at Olin. You're, you're an entrepreneur. You're a teacher and scholar of entrepreneurship, design, and innovation. But let's uh, go back in the time machine and explore uh, what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Gosh, <laughs> back in the time machine. I, I guess maybe the, uh, the designer and the entrepreneur in me probably says everything. Uh, uh, let's see. You can, you, can set, you can set the, uh, you know, so the, there's a, on the time machine, there's like an age uh, year setting. So you can, you can decide to, how far back you want to go in talking <laughs> to our listeners about how you got to where you got. Uh, so I'll, I'll bounce around if you've given me the controls of the machine. And, you got it. Uh, Go. I think I'll jump all the way back. And I certainly believe that some part of how I ended up here is a function of the, the curiosity that I think I still hold and that my mother certainly made room for. Right. Mm-hmm. So like many engineers and designers, I think I have fond memories of, of taking things apart and being allowed to take things apart. Uh, but probably even beyond that, as I can see manifest in my, my six-year-old son, Gabe, I know that my mother answered every question that I had, which I'm sure uh, were incessant. And so I think, uh, I, <laughs> I think uh, destiny is, has fed that back to me in the form of my son, and I, I think I'm yeah. doing my best to do that now. Um, so really, I think I've always been curious, um, always wondered, hey, what about this? What if this happened? Why is that happening? Mm. And through, through luck and blessing, I've always been put in situations where I could explore that curiosity and, and, and try things out. And I, like you said, I'm a professor of both design and entrepreneurship, and I think I've found sort of educational paths and also career paths that allow me to, to play on both sides of, of that, 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 that sort of uh, coin, you know? Beautiful. And we also, like a follow-up on that question, oftentimes uh, Mark Somerville and I wrote in A Whole New Engineer about, and it actually kind of uh, sneaked up on us a little bit 
in writing the book that you know we we were thinking like many reformers about content curriculum and pedagogy, but we were led more to um, unleashing of courage in people as the essential ingredient of 21st century education. And so we're interested in those unleashing experiences, the uh, particular particular experiences, and they can be one-off or kind of routine experiences that continued and and those particular individuals um, who um, gave you the uh, courage to go your own way you've mentioned your mom um, uh, what uh, what experiences or individuals helped give you the courage to go your own way yeah I think and and I think certainly going back to my mother is is appropriate um, kind of on one end, and yep. I'm going to still hold on to the to the controls of the time machine and sort of fast forward and look at this yep. end. And, yeah. and even as I, I think about my kids, I, I think there's probably two pieces of that for me. One okay. is certainly the the unleashing, um, and I can point to uh, professors that I've had uh, who have done any number of things, be it answer who, my who? questions. I, who? Hello. Yeah, who? No, who? Well, name name one. Yeah, so what? Oh, name, who? Uh, like somebody who in particular? Like yeah, no, no, no. Someone in um, uh, yeah. So like I'm an all, but you know, someone in particular that um, that uh, helped do that in particular. And that's oh, not God, denigrating that so. those that you don't that you don't mention, but just well, teachers. Uh, certainly, I, I, I there's a super warm place and big place in my heart for my um, high school physics teacher, yeah. Craig Barrows, who who I went to high school in Oakland, California, and. I mean, physics for me was, was unto itself a subject that just excited me because I realized, you I mean, I, there are things that I can understand that help me explain all this stuff that's going on around me. And he sort of held that key and helped me unlock that door. Uh, but I, I also was thinking fondly just last week uh, about a professor that I had in, in undergrad at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, yeah. Dr. Tony Farquhar. And for him, it wasn't even so much the content of the course. I took him for yep. a machine design course, yep. but I felt like he was one of those professors that, that for whatever reason, saw me. And to be seen by a professor and to be acknowledged and to have someone see in you potential and, and ability, sort of a twinkle in their eye that, that, and, that others might not see. And I think the twinkle is perhaps to see more in, in, in you than you do at that point in time. And it didn't necessarily manifest as anything that was instructional, but just maybe even just the way that he interacted and engaged with me. Yep. I, like I said, this past week was thinking back and am only now more recently processing sort of what a role that played in me and, and the development of, uh, and sort of my assuming ownership of, of my, my confidence and, and, and willingness to sort of go forward and pursue the path that I've had. Um, and on the flip, I mean, I think, Again, mentioning I have two little boys right now, Daniel and Gabriel. Yep. I, I have to, to, to go back and invoke. There's the unleashing of, the, of, of, of creativity and sort of confidence and courage, but there's also just the, the nurturing and the care of it such that it's, mm. it's something that is never suppressed or, or lingers very close to the surface. And I have to say that I've had experiences along the way that have done, I think, a really wonderful job of just even preserving that the, those elements that I think uh, are so often lost, unfortunately, through many educational and life experiences. 
Yeah, the big word that we use in the book, although it's, you went beyond it actually with care, we use the term trust, that trust leads to courage, leads to the unleashing. But it, it, in talking, it's actually, it, we do this in every show, and it's interesting the way in which uh, those stories can be positive ones, like the ones you told, and they can also be negative ones where people said you couldn't do something, and, and that distrust actually caused a person to trust themselves and go forward and, and do it. So there's, there's, it's actually interesting that the variety of mechanisms that seem to seem at work here, but it seems like they, you know, um, Professor Farquhar's um, presence to you and acknowledgement of you and, as you said, seeing you, um, it seems like that's, that's one that we could do some work on with a different style of, of training if we didn't if we didn't always train people for content curriculum and pedagogy, but if we trained them actually to be present to the young people, to them, that that actually we could we could up the amount of time that 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 ha- that that happened. Comment. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and you invoke the word presence, right? And I and I think back and uh, on Dr. Farquhar and many many others, and it yep. wasn't. It was simply the fact that they were there and they were there with me and they acknowledged my presence there and even just as as a human <laughs> right and so to have a conversation and try to understand what it is that my goals were or weren't and to engage me in that journey yeah right i think is is you're completely correct in that is that's something that is is fundamentally human right and it doesn't necessarily mean that yeah. we need to uh, go and, and, and as busy professionals, as, as, as teachers, as instructors, go learn a bunch of new content. Uh, a lot of it has, has more to do with pausing and maybe just being more present. I, lo- I love your invocation of, of that word. Yeah, and actually, so we're in, this is a dimension I hadn't anticipated this dimension, but it seems to me that it actually, um, actually connects to... Um, connects to your dissertation, I was looking at the decomposition in your um, uh, in your dissertation about uh, adaptive design expertise, a theory of design thinking and innovation, the work you did at Stanford finishing in 2007, that you, you decompose uh, um, design thinking and innovation along three dimensions. It seems to me that the, there's room in that, that work and actually explicitly room in that work for the human dimension. What, what are those three dimensions, and, and why are they important to uh, innovation and, and uh, entrepreneurship and design? <laughs> I didn't realize that we were going to stay in the time machine. <laughs> you know, we we're coming forward, though. We're moving ahead. We'll get, hopefully, <laughs> we'll get to 2017. Yep. Um, no, no, and, and so the three dimensions um, were and are, uh, there's an active dimension an abstractive dimension and an adaptive dimension. And for me, I think this was my effort as as a grad student to really wrestle with what I'd seen and experienced um, as someone who existed in a design classroom, both as a teacher and as a student, uh, who existed as obviously a design researcher, as a graduate student sort of outside of the classroom, and then also as a design practitioner uh, through through internships and other professional work, and trying to say, well, how do I think about how these three pieces, design, education, design research, and design practice, how do they all fit together? 
because what I'd experienced was really sort of siloed or separate sort of experiences in each of those domains that I'd lived in. I'd seen theory not coming into into the classroom. I'd seen practices in sort of in the work world that were completely disconnected or even skeptical of some of the things that I was learning over in the design space and the research space, saying, well, how do these interact? And beyond that, how do we think about design thinking, which which um, was a really popular term and continues to be. It was like, what, what is that? And how do we, how do we um, wrap our minds around that? And most importantly, how do we wrap our minds around how people develop in this space? And so for me, those three dimensions were an effort to characterize how it, what, what design thinking is and what, what, what is the behavior and the thought that, that designers sort of develop to be able to do. And the active dimension was really answering this question of what is your relationship to to knowledge or to, mm. to tools or to what is your relationship to, to things, right? And so in that dimension, and this maps on to sort of theories of intellectual development, but at the one end of the spectrum, you sort of, you can see I can just use things. I can use ideas. I can use pre-existing components that are on a shelf, right? Yep. But I can pull them off and I can connect them, but I'm sort of constrained to use. And at the other end of the spectrum is create. And in the middle, there's something that maybe is like tweak, right? And so you say, these aren't strictly off the shelf, but I can adapt them and adjust them in some way. But then at the other end, it's like I can create from, from a new. And so that's that active dimension, which I imagine you, you can see readily maps on to sort of this progression of intellectual development moving from sort of an absolute space into a more generative uh, a space. And then the abstractive component uh, built on other sort of cognitive frameworks was well, how do we reflect on thought and how do we reflect on um, the work that is we engage in? And one way to think about that is to look at the progression of design history um, and design process and realize at some point people just made stuff and didn't think too much about the process, right? Like we just need to make and therefore we make. And there's lots of great research that talks about this shift from making through designing and even the notion of doing something on paper and drawing out a plan before it is before you go and try to create something now lets you treat design itself as an object of your design. So it's, there's this, reflect, this abstractive shift to where I can design design, right? Yeah. And you can sort of shift above that and say, well, let me not just accept sort of processes. Let me design those design processes. And so that's arguing around, well, how do we think about not just our objects but the processes and how do we think about Above the processes, how do we think about learning and actually crafting the things that sort of trickle down to ultimately manifest as these things we make, right? And so that was the reflective dimension. And then the last dimension was really uh, leveraging this idea of adaptive expertise and saying, in all of this, we need to be very much aware of what the context is, ourselves included, and be able to dynamically and sort of flexibly shift our use of tools. Sometimes you actually need to use something off the shelf as opposed to create. And sometimes you exist at the ground level where you're just making the products, but you also need to be able to go up and think about your process and even above that, but then come back down. And so how do you flexibly, dynamically uh, navigate that space? And it's through the navigation of that space that I think uh, real Innovations is it, real, real innovation is made possible, and and real development and growth. 
Yeah, nice. We need to take a little bit of a break, but what I'd like to do is uh, come back after the break, if, if it's okay with you, and and check in about how you got from from that work, kind of uh, uh, some theoretical work uh, and trying to understand design to to your position at Olin uh, via, I guess uh, you made a stop at a little place called MIT along the way. Can Let's do that uh, after the break. How about that? Absolutely. Love to. Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our uh, special guest Lawrence Neely of Olin College. In the next segment, we're going to uh, check check in on how he how he got to Olin and some of the work he's doing on entrepreneurial education there. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And the second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates and a whole new engineer. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution. And get the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. We're back with Lawrence Neely from Olin College, and we're just talking about uh, some of the work that he's done on on, uh, scholarship and and design and entrepreneurship and innovation thinking. And and Lawrence... um, yeah, one of the things that you did back at Stanford that interested me as looking at your background is you had the um, opportunity to participate in uh, structured site visits of of businesses both in Silicon Valley and and uh, one of the hottest entrepreneurial places in China in Shenzhen and and um, I'm sure the visit had research in, intentions, but I'm actually a little bit more curious now, kind of. Uh, Ten years later, or however long it's been, what were your longer-term takeaways from that sort of comparative uh, visit? Yeah, no, I think I think I did that right after grad school. Um, much to the, the and I, I have to think back to Professor 
Dave Beach, who was the Stanford professor who, who was uh, wise enough or perhaps foolish enough to, <laughs> to take me along on a number of those trips. And we really visited these places um, in an effort to understand manufacturing processes and, and what sort of state-of-the-art was with respect to any number of, of ways of making many different products. We looked at ceramics. We looked at, like, ceramics has in plates and pottery. We yep. looked at bicycles and bicycle frames and all these different things. But I think the thing that struck me most personally about that was a couple of things. <clears throat> and this is, in some ways, sort of very personal, but really influences how I think about um, how I encourage students on their own sort of educational paths is uh, I did it. This was, for me, the product of a curiosity that was always sort of a side curiosity. So, so uh, these visits were something that weren't associated with my advisor, weren't directly associated with my, my research and sort of theory development, were something that I just always had this passion for and continued to sort of want to know how things were made. And so uh, taking these trips really sort of fed that, even though it was in sort of the in-between space. Yep. And this idea of pursuing things that you have some passion for and finding ways to do that even when they don't necessarily fit, I think, is a really important takeaway. Um, to see another thing that was, that was really interesting to me that resonates uh, even today, perhaps especially today, is the way in which things are so similar. So, so seeing things that are very much elements that are very much the same independent of where you land, whether it's in in some place very proximal to Palo Alto, California, or somewhere uh, in in Shenzhen, and then things and and things are sort of deeply interconnected in that we were working. All the companies we toured in Shenzhen were uh, manufacturing facilities for really highly regarded. Uh, brands and products that landed all over the world, certainly in the U.S., and things that I had never really imagined uh, yeah. had components or the entirety of their their sort of product offerings uh, coming from this sort of global global manufacturing network. So that was really amazing to me. Um, and then maybe the last thing that I'll, I'll say is that trip for me really encouraged me. Uh, it sort of thinking in this space of sort of courage and confidence, yep. that it's okay at times in life to say, when people ask the question, what are you going to do next? To say, I don't know. Yep. And I'm just going to hang out in the I don't know for a little while. Because that trip for me was right after grad school, and I embraced sort of that space and was able to take that trip and then even able to take some time after that trip to, to really think about um, what might come next. Yeah, I don't know is so important, and yet uh, engineering is is an I know kind of profession. And we sort of are trained to know and kind of not knowing is sort of, it's a problem. And yet it, it's a, that polarity between knowing and not knowing is a really crucial one to manage well in your life. And, and there are certain uh, certainty-driven professions that um, have a real hard time with the not knowing side of things. Comment. Absolutely. Yeah. So okay, so let's. Uh, we're going to speed up the time machine here a little bit. So you 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 leave Stanford. Uh, you you make a pass through um, MIT, and along the way, you're you're teaching while you're at MIT. You're teaching user oriented collaborative design, one of our one of Big Beacon Radio's favorite courses, and um, 
you do that for a while, and then in 2011, you become a faculty member at, at Olin. What, um, what prompted the move to Olin? Why, why, uh, why Olin at that point in your life? Yeah, it's so interesting. So, so probably like most things on that appear sort of on CVs that look like sort of clear <laughs> and distinct transitions, yep. all of these things really live along a continuum. Um, and I think maybe that's, I'm, I'm realizing maybe that's especially true for me and the path that I take. So I finished graduate school, dwelled a little, started a postdoc at MIT, and concurrent with my postdoc at MIT was uh, teaching UOCD at Olin, and that was really my connection point to Olin. Uh, I knew had friends, close friends at Olin, and they said, we think this class UOCD is right up your alley, so, and we'd love to have you in the classroom. So I was doing both of those simultaneously, post, and, and admittedly also teaching at MIT in their second year design course, um, 2007. Mm-hmm. And just to track it back, having left Stanford teaching their introductory design course, ME 101, so having these three sort of threads, very different places, but teaching very similar courses across all three. Um, and what happened with Olin is, as my postdoc at MIT sort of dialed down, we turned that dial down, we'd, there was an opportunity to turn the Olin dial up, and it was a shift from um, one space to another, and I think that the Olin shift really... Um, was due to the fact that there are so many things, I think, that resonate um, with respect to Olin's mission and also with respect to my interest in skill sets that it's worth giving it a shot and seeing, seeing how, um, see if I could offer some value uh, to what's going on at Olin. And so far, I believe that that is indeed the case, and I'm certainly benefiting from it. Yeah. So um, in preparing for the show, uh, Anne-Marie Dorning, a uh, and uh, Olin sent me some quotes from you, and one of the quotes said, everything we do at Olin is different, so it follows that we, the way we teach entrepreneurship is different, too. So in, uh, in what ways is the teaching of entrepreneurship philosophically different or distinctive at Olin? Well, one of the things I like to, to say, even with folks who are at Olin, is if you think about how we contrast what it means to teach engineering at Olin with what, whatever your sort of stereotypical view of teaching engineering is, apply that to entrepreneurship as well, right? Because I think teaching entrepreneurship at Olin is not at all disconnected from teaching engineering. And, and indeed, I think one of the ahas that, that was really sort of pivotal for me was really, re- really sort of having to address this question of, well, what in, what is entrepreneurship and why is it relevant to every engineering student? And why is this a fundamental piece of, of what it means to be an engineer? And I think part of the answer in that is, is again, fundamentally coupled to how we talk about engineering. Right? Engineers are charged not just to imagine compelling widgets to put on a table, but to understand and engage the humans on the front end of the process and the, from whom the needs and the values arise that inform the products that we create. And the entrepreneurship piece is they're also charged to understand the people on the other side of the process who might call users or customers that we are to deliver these solutions to if they are, in fact, to have any value or to deliver impact. And so situating this question of entrepreneurship or this tool of entrepreneurship in the context of engineering 
which is also situated in the context of how do you make the world a better place, I think is, is the key distinction and sort of the key sort of aha for me and I think that drives um, our efforts around entrepreneurship here. Yeah, and, and I, I really like the way you put that. And um, you, around that, you claim that we need a more expansive and durable definition of entrepreneurship. Um, so what's the narrow definition um, straw man and what's the what's the what's the durable and uh, expansive definition that that we're yeah, that th- you're actually teaching or trying to teach I, and I, th- I think there's a couple ways to think about it but I think one of the key things is is and it's related to what I, I said a moment ago is yeah. that recognizing that entrepreneurship as well as engineering are tools right and it's easy in teaching uh, tools if we just are in love with the tools, to, to teach the tools for tools' sake, right? And you say, well, let's focus on how to use this tool. And you tend to not ask questions of, well, why do we use this tool, right? And what do we use this tool for, which readily shifts to the impact and the value that, that's a consequence of this, right? So in the same way that we don't say, we teach thermo and dynamics and engineering in general just for the sake of those things because we love them, but we say, who benefits from our use of these tools. I think this definition of entrepreneurship that situates it as a tool that necessitates that you ask and answer this question of, well, what do you do with it, is, is, is the first sort of definitional sense, right? It's like, so shifting perhaps from, from the, a definition that is a noun for the sake of the noun to the verb that, that necessarily says, to what do you apply this verb, right? Okay. So, and and of course, you know, so the, an instrumental view of engineering, of course, can lead in some pretty, pretty nasty directions. You know, so you can be a a, a gas chamber or oven designer for Hitler, and and uh, and there's no questioning about what the the tools being being used for, and and um, and a number of people have pointed out that. There's a fair no, a fair number of um, uh, global terrorists who have got really good engineering training someplace in their their background. So an instrumental view is a purely instrumental view of engineering kind of can lead to some pretty negative stuff. Or if not, if not, those are pretty extreme examples. But but certainly not to um, a larger systems view about how things how things fit. And yet, then, and then there's this uh, dichotomy between, say, social entrepreneurship of people wishing to do good directly in the world, or people wishing to do to do something good or useful through through markets. Um, comment. Actually, that's that's an interesting. You know, so we like at a, an iFoundry when in 2009 when we asked the entering uh, cohort uh, freshmen. Um, why they wanted to be engineers, we got sort of three answers, actually, along the lines of what we're talking about. We got those who said, well, I want to create cool technology, um, sort of the tools for tools' sake answer. We got, I want to uh, save the world. I want to do something good directly with my engineering. And then there are other people that said, I want to be the next Max Levchin and create a company like PayPal, the next great Illinois entrepreneur that's going to change the world through technology. So all those aspirations are there in our young young people um how do we how do we reflect those in the teaching of well how do how do you reflect those in the teaching of entrepreneurship at olin well i think 
funny you use the, the word reflect. <laughs> I think that that's one key element is mm-hmm. intentionally building in um, experiences upon which the students might reflect yeah. and then also giving them room to reflect. And so if I think about our foundational entrepreneurship course, uh, we have done some interesting things. It's, it's as, as is true with most classes, if not every class at Olin, there are, there are constant works in progress. But the present iteration of the course is one in which we've moved explicitly away from having students work on through these longer-term projects to having them work on really quick experiments, experiments in entrepreneurship that are two weeks long. And they'll, do, well, they'll form a team. Actually, we will form a team randomly. They'll engage in a two-week experiment, come up with some conclusions, some insight, yep. and then we'll make new teams again, and they'll do it again. And we'll make new teams again, and they'll do it again. And giving students a number of experiences that let them explore diversity of ideas and also explore themselves. And then at the end of this, give them explicit space in class. And one of the things that I think we've done is it's really important is in the project before the class ends. So we intentionally conclude projects in the course where there's still time left Right. Yeah. So now we're going to sit and we're going to talk about and explore and reflect upon what it is you've done and how do you bring those experiences to bear on your entrepreneurial approach or just even your approach to the rest of your education. Our class mm. is a first-year class, and we say, well, how, do you, how does it change how you think about the rest of the courses you're going to take here or how you think about your career and, or how, do, how it is that you think about what value you might create in the world. And so to do those two things, to give students an abundance of experiences that portray entrepreneurship or engineering for that matter in many different ways such as they might try on different hats and try on different versions of themselves and then giving them explicit room within the curriculum along with some support and guidance to actually reflect on that I think is is a really key mechanism to to helping them develop and and find their own way of owning their education which perhaps includes some entrepreneurship as well as some engineering. Yeah, that's interesting. When back in 2000, probably around 2010 or so, we were uh, in partnership with uh, with Olin through um, Mark Somerville and uh, Shara Kearns, and we were working to bring over, well, we uh, agreed to bring over two classes. One was user-oriented collaborative design, and we sort of ran that in parallel with uh, UOCD on, on Olin's campus. Uh, we did that at, Ol- at Illinois with a pilot, a couple of pri- pilot teams. It continues to this day, by the way. And the other one we ran at the time was called Foundations of Business and Entrepreneurship, or FIBI at the time. And I guess now that course has been supplanted by this new version called Products and Markets. And so what the so one of the changes I'm hearing is from a, a single project, although I remember that single project actually being downsized as we were working with Olin to something. It was, it was like a half a semester, and it got down to two weeks. Anyways, there, there was some looks like the direction you were heading in that direction even back then, but this kind of uh, uh, series of experiments is now um, and 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 I, one of the things I really liked about Phoebe was the fact that the kids actually had to go out and do something in a market and even try to get um, funding or, or sell it to someone. Is that still a part of the, um, of the experiments or some of the experiments? So, so, so yes. In the sense that uh, students, for each of their experiments, have to uh, the, the what is what is a requirement for each of the experiments is that they uh, put something in front of someone, 
out in the world and get actual feedback on their idea. Right? Okay. And for some projects, so you can imagine, if you have something that's ready to be sold, you can do something. That you can sell it. Yeah. But if you have something, it, it also opens up students to explore ideas that are less mature, but they but still compels them to say, well, put it in front of someone and get some feedback on it. Yeah, that's nice. Um, yeah, I keep, so don't yeah. keep it precious. And yeah. I think also in this space of, of not keeping things precious and encouraging them to, to fail and, and to learn from that failure is this shift from even calling them projects to calling them experiments, right? There's yeah. a notion in a project that you're supposed to get the project done and get it right. And we realized that was really hindering students. No matter what we said, just the notion this is a project was really, I think, getting in the way of their learning, whereas opposed to an experiment, well, your experiment is successful whether you get a yes or a no. What's important is that you engage in the process and you can be confident in the yeah. outcome. And just that's great for learning, but also just with respect to entrepreneurship, it's, it, it, it's, I think, a much more sort of useful framing where when we celebrate students who come back with no's, it's like, wow, you figured out that was an awful idea in two weeks. There are certainly people in the world that have worked on bad ideas for much longer and utilized many more resources than, yep. than two weeks. So that unto yep. itself is an amazing lesson. Yeah. No, and it also, I, I think there's a, and there's a sense here, and, and uh, as I remember, uh, Sarah Sarasvati's uh, think, entrepreneurial thinking was taught in Phibian and influence, I th- influences the way entrepreneurship has taught it all. And, and her distinction between causal kind of planning and, and, and which is a dominant big business kind of way to do things. You do things and you don't fail. You plan and you Six Sigma the hell out of them until you get almost no variation and everything's about as, as perfect as you can make it versus the opposite, which is really this kind of experimentation in the face of uncertainty about whether the, the darn thing means anything at all. And so I think this is, I think the, counter, the distinction between sort of engineering, normal engineering work, which is planning oriented, and this kind of freer form is a, just a terrific way to balance or manage that polarity. Comment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that what's interesting is in the same way that we invoke readily this idea of design thinking, and I think the underlying premise in design thinking is that you can um, apply those ways of thinking to anything, not just design of products. I think the same thing is, is true with respect to entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking and, and an entrepreneurial mindset. And so to have these two ways or multiple ways of thinking about and engaging any project or any product or any endeavor, I think is really important. Because even as you talk about these two approaches, both these approaches apply to engineering work as well. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. some engineering work where yeah. if you are replicating or, or, or improving upon a known process, you can, in fact, plan and have a high level of belief in your planning, and you should, right, and, and sort of march your, your project along incrementally in, in, in line with that plan. If you're doing something that's completely new and unknown, your ability to plan is much limited, and so you yep. actually need to work much more iteratively and... Yep plan, but then act and then come back and revise that plan, right? And so, and, and react to what it is that is happening in the world. And so to take that frame and say, this isn't just about sort of positioning, sort of planning and perhaps entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial behavior, one of the opposite ends of the spectrum, but you can also just say, let's take those two things and apply those ways of working, sort of the more deliberate and planful and sort of long-term versus the more 
um, the one that invo- invokes effectuation more so, and say, well, let's take both of those as hats we can wear and let's appropriately apply them to our engineering work, our design work, our entrepreneurship yep. work, um, as, as each of them requires it. Yeah, beautiful. Let's take another break, and I want to I want to come back and and see where um, where entrepreneurship education is what is what it's resulted in in terms of your graduates and and where it's going in the next segment. Excellent. Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Lawrence Neely from Molin College, and in the next uh, segment, we're going to see how how this has uh, turned out uh, uh, for Olin students and where it might might go from here. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's Educational Innovators Working Group, EIWG, group of now about 14 innovating schools that uh, meet monthly, have action-oriented learning action teams, engage in uh, monthly uh, free group coaching sessions, and uh, and uh, join that group and help create change that sticks at your school. Go to bigbeacon.org and sign up at, as an advocate or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. So we're back for our final segment with Lawrence Neely at Olin College. And Lawrence, we were kind of talking about uh, how... Uh, entrepreneurship education ha- has evolved at um, at Olin, and but it it's had a successful history, and all Olin grads so far have been exposed to this um, dangerous combination of engineering and entrepreneurship. Olin was chartered in '97, uh, opened its doors in 2002. I I think it's if uh, my math is right, the class of 2017 will be the 12th graduating class. Um, for, for Olin. And um, let's start with, you know, a lot of times I get asked, I'll go on the road and I'll be talking about Olin and people say, well, Dave, what do employers say about Olin grads? So what do employers say about Olin grads? They say many, many wonderful things. Um, 
uh, and I have two thoughts about that. One is, one of the things that stands out, I think, and how employers refer to Olin grads is that they show up and in many dimensions are, what I've heard quoted is three to five years ahead of sort of some of their peers from other institutions um, with respect to their ability to, to jump in and engage and be productive contributing members of teams and, and on projects, right? So I think that's speaking to their ability to, to sort of nav- navigate ambiguity and to, to navigate um, sort of many of these more interpersonal team human elements of, of professional work and also to engage with the mind towards what value is it that they're creating uh, specifically for the users or the, the, the ultimate sort of stakeholders who are the, the recipients of, of their efforts. So that three to five years ahead, I think, is one that stands out uh, a lot in my mind uh, about Olin grads. And I'll also say that one thing that's been, and I think that's always been true, I think that we've heard that from, um, from very early on. A, th- a new thing that I'm hearing has less to do with Olin grads and more to do with present Olin students and as they go out um, and engage in internships. And so a space that's really sort of curious for me now is that I heard a lot of wonderful things about Olin first-year students. And so you know that it's typically really hard for first-year students to get internships because companies want sort of more seasoned and more mature uh, students are those who have uh, just more experience. And one of the things I think that I've, in retro- sort of in retrospect reflecting, is not surprising, but one of the things we've heard is that Olin first-year students show up and they're able to provide value and contribute in ways that are in many ways unexpected, right? And, and especially from sort of startup companies and smaller companies, finding that Olin students, because every Olin student is able to code, is able, is, is comfortable in sort of cross domains and sort of disciplines, right? So they're comfortable yep. playing with electrical hardware, mechanical hardware, comfortable coding, comfortable with circuits. Yep. And so you'll take an Olin first-year student and plug them into a startup as, as an intern, and they say, oh, well, yeah, whatever you need done, one, I'm fine diving in and figuring it out, but two, I bring some skill sets so that I can kind of come at it from all these dimensions. So I think this notion of this adaptability and this flexibility and sort of the breadth of, of Olin students' abilities is one that, now that I think about, probably is a thread that runs through it that you can see manifest all along the way. Well, and actually, it, you know, you're, you're talking about, and that's, there's a sense in which that's, there's a sense in which um, that was what I noticed on my first visit to Olin in 2008, and actually the the sign in the hallway that talks about the Olin effect, that's actually a term that, that we coined at Illinois uh, to help us understand what was different about Olin, but, this, but it came from being in a first-year class, second semester first-year class, and listening to your students talk about their experiences. And the cool thing was that they talked about these experiences very naturally as emotionally, fairly fully formed engineers, that they got what it was that engineers did, they liked it, and they were going to do more of it. And so that's when we coined the term Olin effect. I, I'm gonna, I think on my tombstone, I'm going to put coiner of the term Olin effect. But, um, <laughs> but, but um, 
but it's it's a sense in which that it's that cultural difference that is actually so distinctive. It's interesting that that that's showing up um, even more so now as as these first years go out in internships and they're they're much more capable. Um, I, I actually I mean, we turn this around. It's one of the things that transformation of higher education is has got to be about is we have so severely underestimated students with the obedience-based regime that we have that when we kind of give them freedom and 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 in, encourage them and trust them and let them uh, exhibit courage to do stuff that they didn't know they can do, they do it. And it seems to me that that's actually – Anyways, when I look at Olin, that's what I that's what I think of. Comment. Yes. Yeah. It's and it's beautiful, and it's beautiful that it's uh, that you're getting. Um, sounds like the I, I was hearing I, in the old days. I was hearing eighteen months of, ahead of their of their uh, uh, counterparts, but it, if 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 that the estimates are re, being revised upward, that's that's a great thing. So, but I, there's. Yeah. So, but but um, but actually, we've been talking about entrepreneurship, and there've got to be some great stories around entrepreneur around Olin graduate and Olin student entrepreneurship. What are what are some of the great stories around what what Olin students have done directly in the world of startup entrepreneurship? Oh, I think that uh, we can go back to the beginning, and sort of if if you've. I think most people, many people certainly have seen the, uh, these trash compactor trash cans that are out around sort of most every city now. And now they're also often coupled with the, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, recycling bins, but the big belly trash cans, that actually, that company found its origin in collaboration between one of Olin's earliest students, Jeff Satwicks, and uh, a Babson student. And it was really, he started working, they started working on that idea even before um, Jeff had graduated from Olin. So those trash cans, those trash compactors, um, which really, I mean, it's, it's trash sounds mundane, but actually have a really compelling sort of impact on, on sort of the city's infrastructure, not just with respect to picking up trash, but also compacting it reduces the number of runs that a, a garbage truck has to run. So there's all these yep. interesting pieces there. Um, yep. So that's one. Uh, bounce all the way to the present, and in our in our introductory class, we actually had a panel with Olin alums coming back to talk to our class just a couple of weeks ago. And in that panel, we had Jeff, uh, one of the founders of Big Belly, which is the trash compactor company. We had um, we also had uh, Slater Victoroff, who's an uh, Olin. I mean, now he's <laughs> he's not an alum because he never officially graduated, but he and his co-founder. Uh, started a company called Indico, which uh, has been, by all measures, wonderfully successful uh, in the machine learning space. And so that was pretty awesome. And I think I've seen other companies sort of get started and, 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 and come and go. There's a company called Technical Machine. There um, actually uh, is a I know that one of our alums, Maya Bittner, was founder of essentially like a, a jewelry um, subscription service, which is really compelling. She's one of the co-founders uh, called Rocksbox. Um, Rocksbox, I'm sorry. 
And I think I'm most probably excited about the extent to which Olin students, and this is this is not surprising, but have started taking, doing two things. One, doing things that are where they take their engineering education and their engineering entrepreneurship education and apply it to their lives, yep. right? And so, Kevin Testato is uh, started a film production company and uh, produce an award-winning, Emmy award-winning um, Monopoly documentary, right? To say, oh, well, yeah, that's what he took his own education and created. Uh, we have another alum, actually a number of alums that now, not surprisingly, have started education um, endeavors, whether it's in the K-12 K- K- sure. space or later on. So, and, and, and there's an abundance of Owen students who, and alums who've gone on to be early um, employees uh, of any number of, of, of companies. And I think the, again, I, the most compelling thing is the diversity, right? You can, yeah. Coming out of engineering school, you kind of assume the tech startup, but the extent to which Olin students are beginning to identify and have been identifying ways to create value and utilize their engineering education great. to apply thank, in many different ways. Thank you. It's amazing. Yeah. So, uh, no, this is great stuff, and unfortunately, we, we're out of time, and want to thank you, Lawrence, for being with us this week. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You can find out more about you on the website at olin.edu. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to Lawrence Neely and Olin College. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.